So in the last couple of weeks, or well, maybe months now, we've brewed 25 gallons. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's how you're coping. <laughs> <laughs> Have you done anything new or is this just old favorites? Oh, these are almost all new, other than oh, the, really? the Hoi Hoi peanut butter porter, which we have to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, we're doing our first sour. We're doing a lemon saison for the summer. Who are you? What? Okay, yeah. wait, wait. Um, so I do this podcast with my good friend, Dr. John Lehman. <laughs> I don't know who <laughs> you are, Mr. Saison, but <laughs> uh, I don't need. Yeah, I don't even know who you are anymore. <laughs> Where's my IPA? You're going to make a sour and a saison before an IPA? I don't like IPAs. Yeah, well, I don't like you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not like the rest of the world that lets to double or triple hop everything. Well, you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, <all right. laughs> this is a short episode. <laughs> Well, I suppose with that, we should probably talk about (laughs) geology. Yeah, something we can agree on. Ninety percent of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information. But don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I'm pretty good. How are you doing? (laughs) Pretty good. (laughs) Oh yeah, so um, we didn't we didn't have a show last week because I ended up doing some work for a client that resulted in me working the other side of the clock in addition to the normal. So I was working thirteen hours ahead of current central time. I don't understand what your problem is, John. <laughs> like yeah, so I started my sleep? started my work week Sunday night and slept for a few hours and got up and went to the office Monday, then came home and ate took a little nap and then went back to work, which was <laughs> Tuesday morning there. And <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, that's awesome. I will say I had, I had some complaints about us not putting out a show last week. And so, yeah, but now you know why Todd Kent. And so here's your show. <laughs> yeah. So sorry about that. I couldn't sleep any less. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could, but <laughs> <laughs> hey, so it I might did have something. had to been 35 gallons of beer. Then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I did something that I, um, I was waiting to get on here to talk about, and I was very proud of myself. Um, so I installed a circuit board on our HVAC system by myself. <laughs> nice. Uh-huh. Yes, I did. <laughs> I will say I screamed and got real nervous when I turned everything back on and plugged it in, but... <laughs> because there's a little red you know system light and i was like oh god is that supposed to be red and i freaked out and my husband laughed hysterically at me but mm -hmm. yeah yeah everything worked on the first try (laughs) so did your hvac just go down it's like the worst thing that can happen in oklahoma oh and so you know when it started to go down was when we had the big seven to ten days of below freezing weather Oh yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It was terrible. So it limped along. Um, and then the circuit board just gave out after that. And we haven't, we actually haven't had it for about a month, but we haven't needed it. Um, 
because we live with the windows open quite a lot. And then it started to get really chilly this week. (laughs) And I said, order that thing. (laughs) And so we ordered it and my husband's been having some back problems. And so I said, I got this, honey. And he goes, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Went and and got the fire extinguisher. Exactly. (laughs) He texted me the pictures of the old circuit board set up. And I was like, nope, I got this. And I did. Got it. (laughs) That's awesome. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I was very proud of myself. Mm -hmm. I will say I did use the the little test light that he has quite a bit just because I think they're really fun. And so my daughter (laughs) and I have been going around touching everything electrical. And it was great because, I mean, you know, she, she turns four next week. And she would do it and it wouldn't work. And she was like, I guess there's no, there's no electric stuff in this. I was like, yes. You're exactly right. There's no electric stuff in that because it didn't work. <laughs> I just can't believe she turns four because I remember uh, yes. being pregnant on the show with her. <laughs> yeah. Can you believe that? Four. Yeah. On Wednesday. So that's uh, that's exciting. <laughs> yeah. It's very great. This is like, I feel like this is the first time we can breathe in the last, you know, four years basically because she's starting to get enough autonomy. We don't have to watch her constantly but also now she's playing a lot more with power tools so that's a problem <laughs> that's good though playing with power tools is oh you better believe that. it it's her favorite thing is to go out to the shop mm-hmm. and she had a very elaborate game where she put all these bolts inside this um like this chassis that we have sitting out there waiting to get painted and she was working on engines the whole time it was pretty awesome <laughs> Nice. <laughs> yeah. So if you need uh, if you need anybody to work for you in you know ten years, <laughs> I <Yeah>. got somebody. <laughs> All right. Um. But so yeah, geology. We got some making up to do, and I'm really impressed that you picked this outrageously geological thing to talk about. <laughs> I did because, <laughs> to be totally honest, we had a customer come up and say, "Hey, we want to." we want an instrument to do some things with this. And I knew a lot of the words, Uh, but I had to go do a little bit of geological refreshing because we're dealing with measuring some properties of coal. Again, something I'm surprised we've never talked about. Yeah. I mean, coal provides two fifths of the electric power Worldwide, and that's not even including all of the just burning it for heat, burning it for industrial processes, all those kind of uses. It's a massive energy source. Wow, you're kidding me. Yeah. I wouldn't have said it was that much. But then again, so when you're there's a group that does these field trips for companies, right? And so one of the field trips I got to go on was out to Utah to look at stratigraphy. And very frequently we would either be stopped by or we'd be on top of some promontory and could look down and see the railroads running and the cars were just packed full of coal. And it would be hundreds and hundreds of, you know, open trucks. It was just crazy. How much? And I mean, and that was just, you know, one place in Utah, which Utah is a place where we have a lot of coal um, in the U.S. And it was unbelievable. 
Wow. Yeah. And the U.S. isn't even in the top five coal mining countries. Not even. I wouldn't have guessed that either. I mean, I knew yeah. we weren't like number one. Like we're, we are natural gas rich. Like that's what the U.S. has. But that really surprises me. We're not in the top five. So China, India, Australia, Indonesia, okay. Russia. Australia. Australia. Okay. Mm-hmm. About a third of the world coal exports. Okay. So you yeah. have to have a very specific, you know, geological environment to make coal. So it's interesting to me to think back on this because, you know, we're really North American centric when we teach stuff like earth history, right? So I can tell you the ages of like coal in the U.S., but it's interesting to think where those places were in geologic history to make a lot of coal because you're not making a lot of, not making a ton of coal in Australia right now. No, <laughs> no, <laughs> not a lot of leafy matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's uh wow. That's really cool. Um, so yeah, I mean, coal is, I don't know. Have you used coal for anything? Have you ever done like a, a coal burner or anything? Um, and not just, not besides just like for fun in a campfire, here's some coal I found on a field trip. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's all. I imagine yeah, but, a lot of our electricity comes from it, but. Yeah. And I've actually had the opportunity to do some stuff with, uh, steam engines that are run on coal, like the boilers oh. stoked with coal. So that was pretty neat. That's awesome. Uh, but yeah, so coal is a pretty energy rich source Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's really just dead plant, but a lot more happens to it. Yes. (laughs) So you can burn the plant or you can wait several million years and then burn it with even better results. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And so like, you know, when we talk about our energy resources, just like you said, coal is one of these things. Um, But it's, while it is full of carbon, it's a little bit different than oil and gas, basically because how those molecules that have originally come from plants, how they rearrange themselves, right? Yeah. So instead of just falling over, dying, and biodegrading, the plant falls over and it gets into some kind of anoxic environment. Mm-hmm. And so think swamps. That's what we're talking about. Yes, and it becomes peat. Okay. Which you go to Lowe's and buy peat. Yep. (laughs) You know, bury it in a few million years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh, It would turn into coal. Uh, So a couple of things just about that geologic um, environment that you're making these. Um, Because I think this was kind of hard for me to think about, like, water in a swamp being anoxic. But it is. Yeah, very still, not getting overturned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's nothing to, like, stir it up. And so that stuff Acidic. just... Yeah. yeah. And it just start. it just sits there, right? And a lot of time, I mean, swamps are really full of leafy vegetation and trees. And a lot of times it just gets stuff starts dying so fast and trapped in that swamp, it just can't get broken down. And that's the anoxic part of it. And actually the formation of these swamps. So think of your favorite local swamp. 
And those environmental conditions, you can actually bury so much organic matter that some of the ice ages in Earth's history were probably set off by burying carbon and taking CO2 out of the system in swamps. Right. And we'll come back to sequestering carbon and then what burning coal does to that. Uh, yes. <laughs> Later. <laughs> yeah, that's a big deal. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So you bury all this stuff. Um, this is actually a really North America-centric thing that I thought was interesting, too. So when we talk about the geologic time scale, which we've talked a lot about in here, the end of the Paleozoic is the Carboniferous. But we break it out into the Mississippian and Pennsylvanian. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> because I mean it's called the Carboniferous because obviously worldwide there was this was a time where we were making a lot where we were creating a lot of coal in these swamps. And due to changes in sea level in America, we well, it wasn't America then, but <laughs> in proto-America. Um <laughs> we break it out because during the Mississippian time period, we were actually under enough ocean water. So there was, you know, these oceans on top of the continents. And so we were making limestone. And then the Pennsylvania, when you started to drain off a lot of that ocean and we were able to make swamps. And so we delineate the Carboniferous while the rest of the world was just making swampy, delicious coal. <laughs> right. And you know, it's pretty, because in the Carboniferous, you ended up getting a lot of wildfires. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That forms charcoal. Mm-hmm. And charcoal can't get eaten by the bugs. Right. So even if it's not anoxic, you're still going to make coal most likely. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fires give off lots of CO2. That means the plants grow really well. It means they burn better, die better, become charcoal faster. So you get a ton of coal during the Carboniferous. Mm-hmm. So, so when you're making, yeah, yep. Exactly right. It's just the the perfect storm to create this. And coal is a type of, if we want to back up um, even more, it's a type of sedimentary rock, right? Because everything we're we're describing um, is sedimentary rock processes. But it's a by a lot. It's kind of a special. So we've got chemical and plastic, and it's sort of what we would call like a biochemical sedimentary rock. Well, then it gets basically metamorphosed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, that is true. Uh, to the so, point of beyond using sometimes. Yes. Right. <laughs> uh, so then at this, at the KT boundary, you have what's called the coal gap. Mm-hmm. We don't well, call it the KT boundary anymore. Well. It's the KPG boundary. <laughs> okay. At the boundary, at the great uh-huh. expansion. <laughs> since, you've, since you've left school, John, we've renamed the geologic time scale. <laughs> Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> anyway, you go got ahead. this coal gap because there's not a lot of coal being made for quite a while, mm-hmm. uh, which also explains why it's so preferentially found in some areas because all well, those areas had good conditions and a good time span, and that age of rock is being exposed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I was in Pennsylvania. There's a lot of coal mining in Pennsylvania because a lot of that's getting uplifted, and then you get this nice northeast southwest striking folding and erosion that lets them pretty much just whack the tops of mountains off yeah, uh, yeah. or go a little bit under them and get a lot of coal. Exactly. And I, I know we've talked about that book on here before, but the Simon Winchester book, The Map That Changed the World, uh, which is a story about the first 
geologic map drawn by William Smith was his whole job was he was looking at fossils, but it was associated with coal mining. And so they would like follow coal seams as far as they could, the stuff that was at the surface, you know, and then we're like, Oh, these go all the way underground and you just keep going. And so coal played a prominent role in creating that map too, chasing it from the surface to the subsurface. Right. And coal mining is something that I'm actually pretty interested in because the the process and everything that you have to do to mine coal successfully is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, yes. But that's, that's not what we're going to talk about. We should make coal first. <laughs> yes. So, okay. you. There are several articles out there that go through the detailed chemistry yes. of how all these lignans and cellulose get broken down. You've got alcohols and benzenes and, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you compress the coal. <laughs> you heat the coal. <laughs> and a lot of the more volatiles come out. So methane, uh, any other lighter gases like that come out of it. Oxygen, if there's any oxygen left, comes out. And you start increasing the carbon concentration. Right. And so that's the thing we're interested in when we talk about hydrocarbons. And that's the thing we're interested in when we talk about coal is the amount of that carbon, right? So you said the word peat earlier, which is sort of the first part, the proto-coal. And that's 50 to 60% carbon in peat. And you can actually burn peat. So if you've been to the northern part of Scotland, which is where I did some undergrad work and some work in my dissertation and they literally just chop pieces of peat and then they roll it up like tiny little adorable rolls of Bermuda grass. And that's what you burn in the fireplace. There's no trees there now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, but there's, there's enough carbon in the peat that you can actually burn that as a fuel too. Yeah, and so you take that peat and compress it. You dehydrate mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. You decarboxylate it. You mm-hmm. demethanate it. Yep. And you start going into where now we're talking about a metamorphic rock. So 60% carbon or more, you get to become coal. And coal grades have some of the best names. <laughs> um, so did you find, like, why? Well, anyway, nope. I will just go with the next one because I know what that one is. And so the next one's lignite. (laughs) Yep. So lignite doesn't look like you would associate coal with typically. Right. Exactly. So when you think about like a chunk of charcoal or just a chunk of coal in general, that's not what these in-between things look like because peat just literally looks like dirt. And then lignite's kind of, I don't know, it's gooey or dirt. (laughs) Peat looks like a good scotch taste. Yes, that is absolutely true. So. (laughs) If you're into that sort of thing. (laughs) Yes. Uh, But yeah, lignite's brown. It's it's low rank coal. Mm -hmm. It's not great to burn. Still got a lot of the nasties in it. Yeah, like it will burn, but that's why it's low grade, right? So just like you would grade any kind of ore minerals, coal gets the same thing. Right. Though, interestingly enough, lignite is 
mostly what gets crushed into powder and blown into uh, boilers at power plants. Oh, there you go. So it's not, it's crappy coal, but it still burns. <laughs> yeah, we don't, don't do much else with it. Uh, a lot of power plants, I would say, especially when in North America, when you see trains going by taking coal to power plants, mm-hmm. they burn a higher grade. Okay. Uh, and but high- in, min- in many parts of the world, you still do burn lignite in power plants. Okay. I mean, there's a lot of lignite around, so oh, you yeah. got to use it. Because once you keep burying that, which is not unusual, you're going to heat it up and you get, you know, that lignite heated up to about 200 degrees C. And so this is all, you know, geothermal heating. And then you get bituminous coal, which looks a little bit, looks more like what, you know, draw a piece of coal or whatever. That's bituminous coal. But in between, a lot of times we classify subbituminous coal. <laughs> I'm skipping that. That's ridiculous. <laughs> so it's not lignite. It's not quite bituminous. This is also used in electric power generation. Uh, it's still kind of brown. It's still not the best thing to burn, especially health-wise. Yeah. Uh, but... Yeah, generally you think of lignite and then bituminous, but you will often hear people in the coal industry talk about subbituminous coal. So the difference in the look, you got it brown and lignite's, you know, a little less hard. And then bituminous is like dull, but getting to be black because you've concentrated so much carbon in it. So I guess it's just something in between that. And you see it a lot, at least uh, in southern Missouri. Uh, near where we are, when you're driving around, you'll see these coal seams and road cuts, and they're kind of tiger-striped even. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, so you got these lighter and darker bands, and that's all bituminous. But these these are tiny seams, you know, they're 8 inches, 12 inches thick. Mm-hmm, yeah. Keep you warm uh, for a night, but that's it. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, it's used in a lot of boilers uh, for industrial purposes. Uh, it can also be used to coke uh, the steel making process. Okay. Yep. Gotcha. And that then sounds- you get to anthracite. Right. Uh, which used to be, uh, <laughs> it always drove me nuts, but uh, Toyota would color cars a dark brown <laughs> and call it anthracite. <laughs> and you said, no, this is lignite. <laughs> Which is funny because uh, anthracite is, it is, if you imagine a piece of coal, if you get a lump of coal for Christmas, Mm -hmm. Santa doesn't cheap out. It's it's generally anthracite. You see this glossy (laughs) black thing. (laughs) Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. Not sharp like obsidian, but glassy black like that. Right. And this is what, if you've ever had coal delivered to run a coal-fired furnace in your house, it was probably anthracite. There you go. Which occurs by even more heating, 200 to 300 degrees C as burial temperatures increase. Which is crazy. I mean, we're talking two to three times boiling point. It's hot. Mm -hmm. And that hot has basically gotten rid of everything else. 
and bituminous coal, or uh, sorry, anthracite coal is like 90% carbon. Right. So all the, all the impurities out, all the good burning stuff in at 90%. But we can go further. <gasps> no. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> you can get to pretty much 100%. And at that okay. point... It's just graphite. Yep, sure is. <laughs> I just picked up my pencil when you said that. <laughs> yep. And uh, uh-huh. that, as a matter of fact, pencils are the primary consumer of graphite. Uh, second is the lubrication industry for machine right. tools. Mm-hmm. I it love me some. Burn. I like to, uh, yeah, powdered graphite in your key holes. If they get sticky, that's the way to go. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everybody does WD-40 or something. No, no, graphite. Graphite powder. All the way. Way better. (laughs) Way, way, way better. Mm -hmm. Uh, Graphite and molybdenum disulfide both constantly amaze me at how ridiculously low their friction coefficients are. Yes, I know. And you're like, that's crap. It's a pencil. Yeah. Yes, it's very interesting. Um, Yeah. So you want it heated up by burying it. But not all the way, right? You got to get that uh, that sweet two hundred to three hundred degrees C spot to get the the best of the coal, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, uh, and I mean, when we talk about that, how far down is that? Right, it depends on your geothermal gradient in your area. But I mean, that's that's pretty far down, like ten kilometers in some places. So that's that's pretty deep. It's got to cook there yeah. for a while. I mean, plan on 25 degrees Celsius a kilometer-ish. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So, And there are some pretty interesting uh, coal deposits where you wouldn't – because, okay, you, you think, okay, well, it's got to get buried pretty deep, and it's got to get exhumed. So that tells you where you're looking in the country mm-hmm. or world. Right. And then you see some coal deposits like out in the desert southwest. Wait a second. This was never deep. Um, but you can also get coal forming from contact metamorphism. Yep. Didn't say you had to bury it. You just got to heat it up and burial's the easiest way to do that. But there's lots of other ways. Exactly. Uh, Mm -hmm. so sometimes you get these big intrusions, these big mafic dikes and then along the edges, oh, there's coal. Yep. So weird. Good luck getting it out, but there it is. (laughs) So the weirdest thing to me, especially in the, so especially in the desert southwest, um, y- you know, you were talking about you know making charcoal and fires and all this stuff, but I mean, you know, so coal will burn, and underground coal fires are a thing, and they can just keep going and going and going. And when we were on this field trip in Utah, we went to a couple of places where we found these things called clinker beds. And it's like super melted rock that's been around. So I've got a piece of this clinker stuff. Um, and so it's been around coal and it's like coal. The surface has been cooked through these coal fires. Um, and then you'll see spots in the ground that are bare. Like there's no vegetation there, but there is vegetation everywhere else. And they'll say, don't step there. There's a coal fire underneath that. It's been burning, you know, for 50 years. That's crazy. Right. 
yeah. And then there's the pretty famous case of Centralia. Okay. In Missouri? So, uh, Pennsylvania. Okay. Never and I've been here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, it's a ghost town. Uh, so, there's a huge fire. Uh, the government basically bought the town out. It's It became eminent domain in the 90s. Okay. Uh, but the the mine fire, they were burning, I believe they were burning some trash, and it caught a coal <sighs> seam. Uh, no so this is in 1962. And there was coal mining in the area. Uh, but the fire went into the coal seam. It's been burning ever since. Ever since. <gasps> I mean, as long as there's some oxygen left, you can just keep going. Wow, that's very interesting. So you've been there, and it's, so it's totally, hmm. I've been there. Unfortunately, the road, uh, they buried it to try, to try to discourage tourists from coming there. But there was uh, a section of road where the road had heaved up and got all broken, and out of the cracks, steam would, from the fire would come out. Oh, my gosh. And so people, they call it the graffiti highway because they closed it, built a new a shoe fly around it. And then uh, everybody would go graffiti it and just hang out ah, there. Gotcha. Uh, it was it was really cool. Uh, there's just a few buildings left in town. Uh, there's not really anybody there. Hmm. Random places, smoke's coming out of the ground. Yeah, it's, st- it's still burning, right? Yeah. Oh, this is unbelievable. Yeah. So be careful when you're hiking in the desert or in places where you do see even these tiny coal seams and, you know, don't step on, on places that look different than the surrounding area, because that's what that could be just right under the ground, which is unreal. And coal burns hot. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And those, uh, just looking at those, clinker bed things they were so i mean clinker you can call that as like waste from industrial processes and stuff like that right and stuff that doesn't yeah. burn but yeah it's so so weird with this resulting stuff that burns or that gets melted like this piece that i have it's just like melted and bubbly it was really hot rock <laughs> oh yeah yeah so who knows like when that coal fire was, it's really weird. I think, I think we're in like the Wasatch formation is where we saw these clinker beds, but I mean, it looks like industrial slag or something. So yeah, you don't want to fall into that. You make a blast furnace and I mean, you can naturally make Mm -hmm. alloys. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, so Uh, weird. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So coal's an important industrial resource. Uh, but it is also the largest producer of greenhouse gases. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, 90% carbon. And it took a long time for that stuff to form. And this is where we talk about, and maybe we don't talk about this enough. I don't know. We talk about this in paleo climate a lot, talking about the carbon cycle, because that's what's regulating climate. And so there's long-term sinks for carbon and the long-term sinks for carbon are rocks, right? Like limestone is CaCO3. And so you put stuff into rocks or coal, which is just carbon, over a long period of time. But then as soon as you 
burn that, you've released all that coal. And so now that's like a short-term carbon cycle thing. So you get an imbalance in the processes between making and sequestering all this carbon and then immediately releasing it in terms of burning hydrocarbons or coal. And so those things that took millions of years to get rid of and scrub out in seconds, you're putting all of it back into the atmosphere. And so that creates a weird, not a weird, a a human-induced imbalance in the carbon cycle, which can also happen through like forest fires and things like this too. Right. And so the most recent stat I found was 2016. Uh, But CO2 from coal in 2016 was 4.5 gigatons. That's a lot. When we start to talk about... 14.5 gig, like 14.5 with a bunch of zeros after it, tons. Yeah, like it doesn't even, it doesn't even start to compute at that level, you know. So the statistic I found also said that uh, a power plant, so, you know, they're rated in how many megawatts they put out. Mm-hmm. So let's say you had a power plant that's 100 megawatts, not big. A uh, 100 megawatt power plant in one hour would be about 100 tons of CO2. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, so... It's it's definitely, it's energy dense, but it's also not great for the environment. And it's a finite resource because it was only made during certain times. Mm-hmm. And it's becoming increasingly difficult to economically extract it. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's, you know, it had its place. Let's figure out a different way to get our energy so we can not do that environmental, you know, tweaking of the carbon cycle when we don't have to. <laughs> Right. And I mean, you can send me your hate mail, but uh, nuclear power looks pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I I also find, you know, find looking at these rocks like that are, it's really weird. Coal looks really weird. I think it's really interesting to think about the processes that formed it. And it's like, how did we, how did we start using this? You know what I mean? Did somebody see lightning hit a coal bed and start a fire? That's what's interesting to me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. How do you think, you know? like, hmm, here's a weird rock. I'm going to try to burn it. Exactly. And especially when you talk about peat, like, it's just moss on the ground. What do you mean you're going to burn it? It's dirt. <laughs> but no, it burns. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, that's that's what I find. How did we start using this stuff? But. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, speaking of industrial processes, (laughs) I think that's a pretty good segue, actually, into everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! Yeah. All right, so seismically detecting nuclear reactor operations using a power spectral density misfit detector by Guinja et al. And I don't know the first author, but I know many of the people... In the at all. <laughs> um, yeah, so this one's all you. I almost went back and listened to the show where we talked about power spectra <laughs> before reading this. <laughs> I don't know that it was that important to get the gist. No, 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 it sure wasn't. But it's in the title, so I got nervous. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so 
you love Oak Ridge. You worked there. And it seems like these people just took some detectors and, you know, stuck them out and said, let's see what we can listen to. <laughs> Is that the gist of it? <laughs> sort of, yeah. So at Oak Ridge, there are several reactors. One's the high-flux isotope reactor, HIFER, which I've also been in. Mm-hmm. That's where you uh, got your third arm, right? <laughs> yes, that's where the third arm occurred. <laughs> uh, it was a super cool facility. Really enjoyed getting to work there. Um, but being a nuclear reactor, it, it operates very high neutron fluxes, mm-hmm. uh, thermal, epithermal neutrons. Um, it only runs for maybe a month on a fuel cycle. Oh, okay. And then shuts down. And then they do maintenance, they prep again, they get experiments lined up, and they refuel and run for another month. Uh, so unlike a lot of commercial power reactors where they never want to go down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like They want to go down for fueling as little as possible. This reactor cycles a lot. Okay. Yeah. Which means there's lots of turning valves on and off, lots of starting and stopping of systems. And all of these things create vibration and acoustic, seismoacoustic noise. So they said, well, the process is silent. Nuclear fission doesn't make an acoustic signature. Uh But what could we learn about operations of a nuclear reactor or any industrial facility by looking at the seismoacoustic emissions from that process? Okay. It seems like there would be so much noise that it would be really hard to suss out certain things. Well, that's where looking at spectra comes in. There you go. <laughs> I set you up for that. <laughs> yeah. Because you're going to start looking for the frequency content. Different processes will produce noise, but they'll have different frequency content. Mm-hmm. And thanks to doing things like filtering, we can filter and just see that. Right. So you can take out the lawnmower or the blower fans or whatever. and Or the anthill that apparently disturbed the station. <laughs> Man, I believe it. We have so many ants here. I totally get that. <laughs> and there is a lot of wildlife uh, on the Oak Ridge grounds, and that caused quite a few station disruptions for them. Uh, what, man, what could you? Because I was thinking about that while looking at the the station setup, you know, and it's like that wildlife isn't going to care that there's that yellow traffic cone there. <laughs> nope. They're going to be like, cool, I'm going to walk here anyway. <laughs> now, there are several times where, you, you know, you go in and it's like, oh, we got to stop and wait on turkeys <laughs> or <laughs> other things. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Hmm. What's the turkey frequency? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, what did they learn from this? So from listening to all these things that are happening near the hyphen, like what do you learn about this? And like, more importantly, what can be gained for industry monitoring their operations by this method? Well, so they, they identified quite a few, about 19 events that they could distinctly say, Oh, this is what the operator was doing. Okay. And they matched those with log books. Because so they had the operating log of Hyfer. Uh, so things like, 
adjusting pool crossover valves, closing tower bypass valve, diesel generator number one load test, um, opening tower bypass valve, start down procedure, start up procedure, or shut down, start up, uh, securing pumps and ex- exiting pressurized submodes on pumps, securing coolant loop pumps. Starting and stopping of tower fans and getting the speed of tower fans from the frequency. Mm-hmm. They said they could even see differences in like the number of blades on fans. Oh uh, yeah, that that makes total sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so you could see a decent amount. I don't. I mean, if you're the industrial operator, there's a lot being done right now with vibration analysis for predictive maintenance. Okay. So you stick what's like a strong motion seismometer on the thing, and if it starts shaking, you probably have a bearing that's about to go out. Right. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. I mean, but, now that the that equipment has gotten cheaper than, you know, <laughs> waiting for the thing to break. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But what about, you know, like, um, you're not the operator. You're a competitor. You want to know what your competitor is doing in their plant. <gasps> industrial espionage with seismometers yeah how many lines are they running right now how many shifts oh. are they running <gasps> what, what's their shift change times when are they down for maintenance so in the old days when you're drilling an oil well i love this this cracks me up you'd have guys that would go out and when you would have to trip out of the hole so you'd you'd have to like if your bit broke or something they would sit there and they would count how many strands of pipe came out of the hole. And then, you know, the strands were a certain amount, a certain length and stands, pipe stands. Right. Uh, and then you could know how deep they were drilling. I thought that was sneaky. Oh yeah. No, I've, I've heard a decent number of <laughs> things as extreme as using industry or private jets with thermal cameras to, <laughs> To look oh at competitors' my facilities. Gosh. Wow. Wow. This is interesting. Okay. Uh, so that's my first thought is <laughs> this is a great tool for industrial espionage. <laughs> Lima Geophysical, everybody. <laughs> right. <laughs> hey, we just sell these seismometers. What do you use them for? It's your own business. <laughs> but also, too, imagine, you know, you're you're a country that might do shady things with nuclear technology. Mm-hmm. If you can get somebody to covertly deploy seismometers around that facility, you know what's going on in that facility. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So mm-hmm. not industrial espionage, but espionage, espionage. <laughs> but also if you're talking about like monitoring, you can also do that too. In terms of being like a watchdog organization to make sure nuclear whatever isn't going on, you could use it for you could use it for good as well. <laughs> right. And you know, the other thing I thought is you could use this, say you had seismometers in the air, and these were very close. These were like a hundred meters away. Mm-hmm. Um but say you had seismometers around some facility and there was an industrial accident. It's a it's a great potential tool to help do some forensics. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly you know, right. Oh, we see a signature here of a big valve getting opened. Uh, 
And we can find that in past operating records. And 10 seconds after that happened, the facility blew up. Oh, yeah. Okay. That makes total sense. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we've got, uh, we've got a seismic station at our uh, office. And I was just telling you before we started recording that we have seen, you know, I know what trains look like. I know what traffic looks like. I know what a lot of things around us look like. Um, But just this morning I saw really early in the early morning hours, like five 20 second bursts of really intense vibration. And I have no idea what it was. Ghosts. Um, You know, it could have been (laughs) maintenance on the water lines by the city. It could have been any number of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we were in Colorado and I had a seismometer in our basement, I remember seeing what I am 80 plus percent confident uh, was a nearby drill pad trying to get their tool unstuck. <gasps> That's awesome. And then we had a tank farm about 10 miles away from us. I have an explosion during a maintenance incident and we're able to record that very clearly and even, you know, kind of get a, a wild guess based on that at what the yield of that explosion was. Wow. Really? That's so I, I think it's really cool to be able to mm-hmm. use this for non-geology things, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Agreed. Uh, but I will say, I'm going to try to find it real quick. This paper had my favorite. <laughs> this is the most seismologist <laughs> sentence you could ever say. Uh, let's see. Oh, this is thrilling radio, I know. I, yeah, I know. Well, it's it's totally worth the wait. This was a pretty excellent uh, excellent sentence, that's for sure. <laughs> well, so Shannon, I, I find it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what did you what stood out to you about this paper? Well, so when I read when you sent it, I mean, my first thought was like, why do you send these papers that are fifteen pages long? But. <laughs> Right. I mean, my next thought is like, what's the big deal? Because it it literally seemed like we're just going to throw the seismometer outside and see what we hear. Well, okay. We've already been doing a lot of that, you know, all these stuff about like passive seismic. So what, what's the point of listening where we're at? You know, it, it just, seemed like we're just going to bury this outside the office and see what we hear. Um, but then as you kept reading, it did become clear. And they did talk about like a lots of like nuclear watchdog stuff and um, everything like that. So, so a lot of it is fun stuff too, though, you know, looking at lightning and thunderstorms and how bad they were. That was, that was neat too, you know? So right, it's one of those like, yeah, sometimes you actually do start with just like, let's just see what this does, you know? And then the more you think about it and the more you gather data and look at data, you can say, oh, well, actually you can do all these things that you and I were just discussing. So that's kind of well, what. And, and they did note too, too, like the um, the facility, you don't just set the fans on a cooling tower to a speed, you know, turn it on. It depends on what's the temperature, what's the humidity outside, like how effective mm-hmm. is a cooling tower. Running any kind of industrial facility is a balancing act. Mm-hmm. You're trying to keep your process variable that you want to control where you want it, and you're going to do whatever it takes. 
you know, right. flow more water, flow less water, colder water, hotter water, more fan speed, less fan speed. So the signals aren't consistent. Mm-hmm. Right. So they were trying, they were fighting that some. Uh, mm-hmm. And the detector itself is pretty cool, but it gets pretty deep signal processing pretty quick. Yeah. Uh, so this is a BSSA paper. It doesn't have a volume number yet. Uh, it was a preprint. Mm-hmm. But uh, the sentence I found it is, therefore, rather than indicating the detector failed to capture these events, the event itself failed to produce a notable signal. <laughs> Could you hit that button a little louder next time? <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I mean, I, I definitely see what they were getting at with it, but I just thought it was funny. Right. That, well, the the instrument and the algorithm are clearly fine. <laughs> It's the event that has the problem. Uh, <laughs> it's not us. It's you. <laughs> in, like in experimental rock mechanics, it always killed me when people would say like, well, my data doesn't show, you know, the right thing. And, you know, it's like, no, your data shows the right thing. Like nature knows what it's doing. Yep. You have the wrong interpretation. You just don't know how to read it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like physics is physics. <laughs> You're the one oh. applying your your model of physics. I love it. <laughs> uh, but no, it was a fantastic. I see what they're getting at totally. But the way it was worded just made me chuckle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, this was this was actually uh, really neat, and it's not something I would have thought about. So it is kind of a cool use for this. Yep. So great job to all the authors. I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. And those of you that I haven't talked to in a while, if you hear this, drop me an email. I'd love to hear from you. <laughs> so Shannon, if folks have got the power spectral density signature of nearby industrial events to their home, how can they share those with us? Uh, you can share those uh, via email show at don'tpanicgeocast.com or on Twitter. We're at don'tpanicgeo. I am at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. And then we are sometimes hanging out in the Slack chat room. I'll probably be on there a lot more because virtual field camp starts next week. So come find us there. We're on the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping our show going. You can support us as well, patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And even though operators of nuclear reactors everywhere decide maybe they don't want to wear their radiation suit every time they hear us say it, until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. (laughs) any opinions findings conclusions or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies 